Well, yeah, yeah, good morning. It's great to be here with you today. Um, as um, Imogen said, I get to work um, with the Christian Union at UWA. Um, I'm being trained by Ben Ray and Tim Thorburn um, in the Ministry Apprenticeship. Um, so that's been really good, and it's a great privilege um, to be with you guys this morning. Um, before I start, I'm just going to pray, and then we'll get into it. Um, dear Lord, uh, please uh, help me to speak clearly and faithfully um, that your church may be edified and grown, and that our love for Jesus might grow. Amen. Okay, so public displays of affection. If you're like me, then you're not a massive fan. Sure, a peck on the cheek, or maybe holding hands is all right, but keep, keep your snog fest to yourself. That's private. No one needs to see that. So I inwardly and sometimes outwardly cringe when I see that. When your mate just has to go in for that cutesy kiss and arm draped around, look, I love this woman, I want to show you just how much. Um, yes, public affection just isn't my cup of tea. But is that always right? Should I cringe? Was it right that they show their love for each other? Well, today we're going to be looking at a slightly different display of affection. A woman who very publicly shows her love for Jesus. And this story starts quickly and dramatically. But before we take a look at it, let's meet the characters and get a bit of a feel for what's about to go down. So as we do this, it's handy if you have Luke uh, 7 open. So we have Jesus, always a central figure. And we have the Pharisees, including Simon, the host. We have this sinful woman. And in verse 49, we find out that it's not a private party and there are other guests. Now, I imagine that we all have some ideas of what we think Jesus has done and who he is. But to understand this story, we need to ask, what would the people at the time have known about Jesus? Because it was not yet clear to them uh, exactly what Jesus' true identity was. However, if we look back in chapter 7, we see some of the things that Jesus has done. In the first ten verses, he's healed a centurion slave without even seeing him. In the next few verses, Jesus raised a widow's son from the dead. Then, when John the Baptist sent people to ask if Jesus was the one to come, in verse 22, Jesus responds by recapping some of the things he's done, believing that that is answer enough. He says, The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. See, the people knew all these things about Jesus, and it was enough for them to understand that he's probably from God. They didn't quite know what his role was, but he is from God. The Pharisees, however, had a different view. If we look at verses 29 and 30 of chapter 7, it says that the Pharisees who heard Jesus' words rejected God's purpose for their life. They were not willing to believe Jesus had any authority from God. Yet we meet Simon, the Pharisee, who's invited Jesus into his house. Now he had probably heard that Jesus didn't keep the laws and traditions that the Pharisees held so dear, and that Jesus hung out with people who were less than respectable. Yet he was intrigued, probably hoping that if Jesus is from God, he would want to be with people like him, people who kept the law and were seemingly closer to God. So that's a few of the characters, but what about this sinful woman? Who is she? The only explicit details we get is that she has lived a sinful life and that she is a sinner. 
However, it's clear that she is not a secret sinner. Everyone there seems to know exactly who she was, and they knew that she was sinful. Most likely, she was a loose woman, a prostitute. That's the image that comes to mind. So the main characters in this story are a devout Pharisee, Jesus, and a prostitute. Now to the story. And as we read, Jesus accepts an invitation to the Pharisee's house, and he's reclining at the table. All pretty stock standard stuff. You get invited to someone's house, you're going to end up eating dinner at the table. But then this woman comes in, this sinful woman. This prostitute arrives. She doesn't knock and ask the host if she can come in. It seems that she doesn't even acknowledge him at all. She heads straight for Jesus. Now, can you imagine your shock if a prostitute marched herself into your house and headed for your guests? Surely you'd be indignant. You'd want to do something. You'd try something. Yet Simon is strangely quiet. And the other guests seem to follow his lead. This woman has the attention of the entire dinner party. And they're all waiting to see what she would do and how Jesus would respond. So this woman comes up behind Jesus and she begins to weep. She's sobbing and she doesn't seem to be sad. And then in front of everyone, she gets down on her knees, wets Jesus' feet with her tears and wipes them with her hair. Jesus' dirty, stinky feet that have been traipsing all over Galilee, she gets down and wipes them with her hair. Now, I don't know about you, uh, but I wouldn't want to do that, someone's feet, and I don't think my hair's long enough to do that. But this woman hasn't finished. She starts kissing his feet and pouring perfume on them. Suddenly, this just got more intimate. This is an act of someone who loves Jesus, and it raises a lot of questions. What's this woman doing? Is, she, is Jesus one of her clients? Is she romantically involved with him somehow? Why is she displaying such love for Jesus? And at this point in the story, we don't really know why she's doing this or what her relationship to Jesus is. One thing is clear. She has a great love for Jesus. She's gone to extravagant, humiliating measures to show it. But Simon's there and he's questioning something else. His focus is less on what the woman has done and more on what Jesus' response to it is. His question was, is Jesus a prophet from God? And in verse 39, we see that Simon thinks that Jesus' response to this act has answered this question. If Jesus will allow a sinner like this woman to come to him, surely this means that he isn't a prophet from God. Surely Jesus would know better. This woman has no right to be near a prophet of God. So therefore, Simon decides he can't be a prophet. So this woman has shown an extravagant and humiliating public display of affection for Jesus. And Simon the Pharisee has passed judgment on it. But now Jesus has his say on this very public display. And he starts with a parable. In verse 40, Jesus answers Simon's almost silent judgment on this public display of affection by saying that he has something to tell Simon. And although Simon doesn't think Jesus is a prophet, he's still intrigued enough to see what Jesus will say. And Jesus says, Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now which one of them will love him more? Now that question is supposed to have a fairly simple answer. And Simon gets it right 
when he says, the one who's been forgiven more will love more. We do get this concept. But let me give you a more modern example that might be a little bit closer to home for you. It is for me. Imagine you're driving along the highway at 120 kilometres an hour and a cop pulls you over and asks, do you know how fast you were going, sir? You do the usual things. You reach for the wallet and the licence. But then he says, I'll let you off with a warning this time. Now, you're probably quite happy with that. If you're like me, then you're quite glad you won't have to go home to your wife and explain that you've got another speeding fine. But now, imagine you're driving your car along the highway at 180 kilometres an hour. And a cop pulls you over and says, do you, know, do you know how fast you're going, sir? You do the usual things, but you're kind of shaking a bit. You're in big trouble. You know you're going to lose your licence. Have your car impounded. You're now going to have to ask someone to drive you around for the next few months. And it'll have to be in their car because yours has been locked up. All that's running through your head when the officer comes back and says, I'm going to let you off with a warning this time. Don't do it again. Whew. You might just break down when tears you're so happy. You might feel like getting out of the car and giving the policeman a hug. See, we, we understand that the one forgiven more will love more. And this was true in Jesus' day as well. And these stories just confirm it, that the one forgiven more will love more. However, in this speeding example, the penalties were different for different offences. And this isn't quite uh, what's happening in the parable. The parable's more like borrowing money from a drug lord. One borrows 10 grand, one borrows 100 grand. They each have three months to pay it back, and neither of them did. So both of them will be shot. So they both faced the same penalty of death. And imagine their reaction if they were let off. Both guys should be ecstatic, right? They've just escaped death. So it is, it is true that one forgiven more will love more, but neither can repay the debt, and they both face the same fate. And that matters to us, because the debt that cannot be repaid in this parable represents sin. We may have committed more or less individual sinful acts, but all of us are sinners. None of us can repay the debt for our sin. Not one of us can work it off by doing good or just paying more money. And the punishment for sin is the same for everyone, regardless of the number of individual sins that we've committed. Unless we're forgiven, we all face the same fate of death and eternal separation from God. This is why, just like in the parable, loving the one who forgives you is the right response. So we've looked at this great display of affection and we've looked at the parable Jesus tells. And then in these last six verses, Jesus goes on to show that this parable has actually just happened in front of them. He shows that the woman is like the greater debtor. She has committed more simple acts, and she knows that she can't repay her debt. Simon is like the lesser debtor. However, he hasn't even recognised that he can't repay his debt, or that Jesus is the only one who can forgive it. Look with me now at verse 44. Jesus looks straight at the woman, yet he addresses Simon. Both of them need to hear this message. However, ultimately, it was directed at Simon, as he's the one who has not understood. And Jesus basically says to him, this woman did what you should have done. He rebukes him by pointing out the obvious. You didn't give me water for my feet. In a country where the roads are dusty and hard, that, that just should be done. You didn't greet me with a kiss. 
which is customary, especially for an invited guest. And finally, you didn't give me oil for my head. For an educated Pharisee, you'd expect better. Jesus points out that Simon did not show any love for Jesus at all, not even the common courtesies. Yet this woman, which Simon despised, did all these things. She cleaned Jesus' feet with her tears. She kissed his feet and she poured perfume on them. She showed an embarrassing public display of affection. It was an extravagant show of her love for Jesus. This woman had understood. And now we get to the part that actually really would have floored Simon. His hospitality has just been brought into disrepute, but this is the real kicker. In verse 47, Jesus says that this woman's sins have been forgiven. This prostitute who hasn't led a holy life by any stretch of the imagination has had her sins forgiven by Jesus. So Jesus says to this woman, your sins are forgiven. And in case anyone misheard, he says to the woman again, your sins are forgiven. Now, at this point, Simon should have twigged that the parable was happening in front of him, that Jesus was forgiving a great debt and that he owed one too. But he and the other guests have a question and one they're pretty sure that they know the answer to it. And they ask, who is this that even forgives sins? They would know that only God can forgive sins, that all sin is against God, and that the claim to forgive sin is claiming at the very least to speak with full authority of God, if not to be God. And this isn't the first time that Jesus has done this. He'd forgiven sins before. In Luke 5... 20 to 21, when Jesus had forgiven the sins of a man, the Pharisees had said it was blasphemous for this very reason. However, they'd been a little bit stumped when Jesus healed the guy to prove he could forgive sins. This time, though, Jesus simply states and expects that they will believe it. So Jesus is either straight up lying or he's God. And Jesus seems to think that the weight of evidence is pushing towards him being God. Now, we can know that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, that he himself is God, because we know the rest of the story. But as we touched on at the start, the people had some idea that Jesus was from God. And if we look closely at Jesus' reply to John's disciples, who'd come to ask if he was the one to come, we see um, that Jesus believed that there was enough evidence. Jesus replied with an answer that essentially said, Yes, I am the one who was to come. My actions prove that my power and authority is real. The blind see, the lame walk, I've raised the dead and preached the good news of the kingdom of God. See, only God can do these things. Jesus doing these things has already shown that he is God. That's why he can say that this woman's sins are forgiven. So Jesus can forgive sins. But what's interesting here is that it seems that this woman's sins were forgiven before she came to Jesus. Take a look at verse 47 again. It says, Her many sins has been forgiven, as her great love has shown. Didn't her act of great love happen before Jesus said her sins were forgiven? So was she already forgiven when she did it? Look also at verse 50. Jesus says, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Surely it was her great display of love for Jesus that showed her faith. Now, if you read the first few chapters of Luke, 
you won't come across this woman. Yet it seems that somehow she knew Jesus, and she knew from all that he'd said and done that she was acceptable in his sight. And she came to Jesus full of love for him because she trusted that he alone could deal with her sin, that he had granted her forgiveness. This was the faith that saved her. If this woman had come without knowing and trusting that she was forgiven, it would seem like she was going to Jesus to try and earn her forgiveness. Another case of, I'll show you some love if you show me some love and forgive me. It's kind of like you know, me giving my wife a shoulder massage and then just sitting there waiting and expecting to get one back. That isn't a real act of love. But Jesus seems to say that this woman's great display of love was a real act of love. She wasn't demanding anything in return. She already trusted that she'd been forgiven. Because if she isn't already forgiven, it sets up a pattern of us performing some great act of love in order to be forgiven by Jesus. And that just isn't right. We only know what love is because Jesus first loved us. And it's the same for this woman. Her great act of love came from the knowledge that Jesus had first loved her. She knew her sins had, were forgiven and her love for the one who'd forgiven her could not be hidden. It was the right response and it just overflowed out of her in a way that was obvious to everyone. She knew just how much he'd been forgiven and she had no thoughts that she deserved it at all. So Jesus' response confirms that she was in fact forgiven and that her faith had not been misplaced. It had saved her. And it also shows that this outpouring of love is exactly the right response to the forgiveness that she'd received. And this right response comes in stark contrast to Simon's response. He didn't show any love for Jesus. He didn't recognise who Jesus was and that only he could grant forgiveness. He didn't think that he needed it. He hadn't sinned that much. And, you know, if Jesus isn't even a prophet, then can he actually forgive sins? See, Simon knew that this woman had a big debt and that she couldn't repay it, but he didn't realise that he was the guy who owed 50 denarii. He too had a debt that he couldn't repay. This woman loved more because she'd been forgiven more, but Simon showed no love because he didn't understand that he needed Jesus to forgive him and that he could not pay this cost himself. You see, forgiveness always comes at a cost. The money lender in the parable gave up what in today's currency would be about $110,000. Forgiveness always costs someone. Now this woman didn't yet know the full cost, but she knew the joy of being forgiven. She knew that she deserved the full wrath of God. She deserved death and separation from him. But she knew that Jesus had forgiven her and that her faith had changed. We, however, know the full cost of forgiveness. We know that Jesus took the punishment that this woman deserved and that we all deserved and that he did that on the cross. 1 John 4.10 says, This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Jesus died in our place to pay for our sins. He took the full brunt of God's wrath and suffered the most excruciating death for our sake. Jesus bore our sin, our debt, so that we could be forgiven and live. And this verse makes it very clear that Jesus first loved us. The pattern is not that we love him and receive forgiveness. 
but that he loved us and we respond with love for him and we receive forgiveness. This truly is good news and it's the news that should fill us with joy and love for Jesus. But we have to ask ourselves, have we truly understood what it means to be forgiven? Have we really understood the depth of God's love as he gave up his one and only son so that we could be forgiven? The woman in this story may not have known exactly what Jesus would do to bring her forgiveness, but she trusted in him and understood the magnitude of being forgiven. And her great display of love showed us exactly what understanding this will look like. It will result in a love that overflows into action. Now, I don't know about you, but it doesn't always have that effect on my life. Sometimes I'm a bit like Simon was, and I feel maybe I deserve it a little bit more than that guy, you know, who's had at least a dozen partners and gets drunk every other weekend, and therefore I love this. More often than not, though, than that, though, I don't fully comprehend just how in debt I am, and the magnitude of the forgiveness Jesus brought for me hasn't really sunk in, so I fail to love Jesus as I ought. So we all need to come to grips with the magnitude of forgiveness that we have when we trust in Jesus. We need to understand how much we all need it and that none of us deserve it. Because if we think we deserve it, we aren't really trusting in Jesus for it and we'll never know the full joy of being forgiven or respond with the love that comes from that. Now, many of us do understand what it truly means to be forgiven, but sometimes we suppress our joy and the love we have for Jesus never really shows and we would not dream of doing anything like what this sinful woman did. So I started off talking about public displays of affection, something that isn't comfortable for all of us. But what we've discussed today isn't a romantic display of affection. This is publicly displaying love to the one who forgave us and saved us from our sin. If someone saved you from a car that was going to explode, you wouldn't suppress your joy and love for them. You'd hug them. You'd sing their praises. You'd talk about them without embarrassment. That is the public display of affection that we should show for Jesus. Showing love for the one who saved us should just flow out of us in every situation. Now, let me pause here and stress that I'm not saying that we should fake it or force it. True displays of love for Jesus come from the heart that loves Jesus. However, if like this sinful woman, we understand the forgiveness we have in Jesus, we won't be able to help letting our love for him show, and we shouldn't try and stop it. Practically, though, we don't always know exactly how to do this, so here are two possible ways we could let our love for Jesus show. Firstly, tell someone. At school or uni or work tomorrow, tell a friend or colleague about all that Jesus has done for you. Start a conversation at lunchtime about Jesus' love for you. Secondly, why not, why not sing a hymn of praise while you do the gardening or while you're working under the car in the workshop? We might shock people, but we don't need to hide the fact that we love God. It's right that people see, and it's good for them to see. Jesus died so we can be forgiven. And letting the love we feel because of that show is exactly the right response. We need to keep seeking to understand the depths of the forgiveness that we have in Jesus. Because as we understand this more, our love for him will come through in our lives as a right response to the love that he has showed us.